This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're sitting down with James Lego. James and his wife, Danielle, own and run properties at Condoblin and Wenaring in Western New South Wales, while working full-time off-farm as well. The challenge of 550 kilometres between properties and their off-farm work means they need to be able to plan, prioritise and make decisions well in advance to keep things running smoothly. In today's episode, James shares the journey he and his wife Danielle went on from set stocking to a rotational grazing system. He explains how their focus is on looking after their palatable perennial plant species, using feed budgets as their trigger for decisions within their cattle, dorper sheep and goat production business. You'll also hear how they are now incorporating carbon farming into their mix. Local Land Services Natural Resource Management Officer Jasmine Wells waded through water during the recent floods just to get this interview with James. So James, you and Danielle have got a property at Wenaring. Why did you and Danielle decide to move to the Central West? Good question, Jazz. We'd been looking for a country of our own. I've been looking since I left school and we've been looking since Danielle and I got married in 2006. So we just found this place because we thought it was a really viable opportunity. And once we had a look at the country and what we thought we could do with it, yeah, we jumped on it. And when you say property of our own, what's the story with Dungarvan up at Wenaring? I grew up at Dungarvan, which is between Wenaring and Hungerford, sort of 160 k's northwest of Burke. And it's my father's property, David. He purchased it early 1960s and then grew up there, went away to school in Bathurst and off to university in Orange, then into the workforce in different roles around the country. So didn't really get involved back at Dungarvan till sort of 2007, 2006, when I moved back to Burke to take on a role there locally and also to be a bit closer to mum and dad. At the time, mum was in Burke and dad was out on the property. So my actual business involvement with Dungarvan didn't start till 2007. And so there's been some changes at Dungarvan in the way that you manage things. Do you want to talk us through? Yeah, absolutely. So traditionally, I suppose it was a merino wool growing block. Dad always had merino sheep there for as long as I can remember. Wool market collapse in 1987 really changed, I suppose, the economics for a lot of people right across the country and all the wool growers. So things were pretty tough from there on in. It's 12-inch rainfall country. It can be reasonably productive country, but it's difficult to manage because you just don't have all areas, but especially in that part of the world, you get prolonged dry periods where your feed quantity and quality drops off and you've got to manage that. So trying to run a traditional set stock merino enterprise, essentially in those days, most people ran what they thought the block could handle and you tried to get them through the dry periods as best you could and into the better years. So when we got involved, the place was pretty run down. The family dynamics had changed. Dad was out there by himself and really just catching a few goats at the time and working around to make ends meet. So when I came back to Burke, it was a good opportunity to get more involved at home and to give Dad a hand. So our first venture was to fix up some of the existing fencing. When I say fix it up, I mean stand it up. We started to fence big numbers of feral goats in that part of the world, especially through the 90s and early 2000s. And the country's not productive enough to be able to harvest large numbers of goats and to feed your domestic animals properly. 
we'd always captured and sold goats as an income source, but we really made the decision, and it was part in conjunction with the Western Catchment Management Authority at the time, to start fencing the goats out and getting some control over our grazing pressure. We did six or eight trap yards straight away around different water points to reduce that pressure and help us get the numbers off. And then we started fencing the goats out of paddocks. And it was around the same time that we're starting to become a little bit more popular, I suppose, or we're actually into the country where you can actually start to commercially purchase them. So we bought a small number of Dorper sheep from Queensland and we started obviously running them in the paddocks that we developed to keep the goats out of. So we had a big response from cutting that goat pressure off the place. And then it was more a matter of setting up the country to be able to run our Dorper sheep in a way that's complementary to the country, but also to the business as well. Are you still catching goats up there at all or you've completely excluded that side? Oh, 95% of Dungarvan's all hinge joint fenced. So goat proof fencing, saying that it's 790, 30 hinge joint with a barb on bottom and barb on top. So roos can go under and over and goats can go under in pockets. So we still get small numbers, but they're certainly not having an impact on the landscape and they're more 10% of what we used to get. So I wouldn't say we've eradicated them, but we've certainly got them under control. And so your enterprise is up there, a little bit of goats, not much, dorpers. Yeah, that's right. So the dorpers have been the mainstay. We've also got a carbon farming project there. We started in 2015. So we got started with the dorper sheep and in 2008 or nine, as the numbers grew, I essentially fenced more paddock. Basic grazing principles, we feed budget what's in a paddock and then we dock it accordingly. And once we get to a threshold, we move the stock on. So if you're going to do that, you've got to have lots of paddock options. So works quite well for us early on because our numbers were low. We just had a plentiful amount of feed mm-hmm. to go into. So the country was really good behind us and the country was in good shape going ahead. Obviously, that's more challenging once you get your numbers up. We had 600 in that first lot and then we've had up to 3,000 breeding ewes up there as well. And 3,000 is probably too many. In 2012, 2013, we had 3,000 Dorper ewes up there and into a dry period and ran out of room a whole lot more quickly than we wanted to. So generally now up there, we'll carry around the 1,800 mark and we've got nine or so different grazing options so any of the paddocks will be grazed from anywhere from three months to even 14 months 15 months if you get a series of like a run of seasonal conditions how far out do you feed budget i do a three-month plan and then a six-month decision as such you know what i mean so one at least six months feed but you may have to address that earlier if conditions turn yeah we like to as long as possible but doing the rotations and the planned grazing at dungarvan i've nearly always got a paddock Mm-hmm. up my sleeve that hasn't been grazed for a period of time in that landscape up there and it's got a lot of trees and shrubs right across it we've also got a carbon farming project that we initiated up there as well but if all your plants and veg trees and shrubs are in good shape your sheep will be well fed even when it's dry because there's so much available browse even if your ground cover is dry and even if there's not much ground cover if your trees and shrubs are in good condition your stock will always be in good condition as well yeah, so there's always something in the bank there. For... I wouldn't say we're conservative, but we certainly ensure that we've got plenty in front of us. Mm-hmm. We may miss a few opportunities. So say in 20, we had 440 mils on Dungarvan and it's 60,000 acres up there across such a big area. Essentially, we could probably load up, I reckon, with maybe 16 or 18,000 DSE mm-hmm. to a block that's rated and the Western Lands lease at 6,000 DSE, which sounds crazy, but can do it if you've got the rainfall and your country's in good condition to respond. But that's easy to say. How do you get your hands on 18,000 head in a red hot market where you think there's a decent trade in it? So we tend to be a little bit more conservative and we look after the country first and then we make our opportunities on the back of that. So you'd say that 
your focus is more on the ground cover and on your country rather than on the stock, but the stock naturally benefit from that. In our system, it works so well. Like if you're palatable perennial plants, ground cover, grasses, forbs to trees and shrubs, so palatable perennial plants, mm-hmm. perennial plants that the livestock eat and rely on, if they're in really good condition, well, the stock are just a byproduct of that. And then the other byproduct is the carbon. So how does that work with your grazing? Do those two, are they mutually beneficial or? Yeah, absolutely. So our project area is scattered pretty much right across the property. And then our project started essentially in 2007-8 when we started fencing the goats out and a broad scale management change and we saw a vegetation response on the back of that. So we kept up the similar principles. We'd fence a paddock, we'd remove all the goats, then we'd rest the paddock till it got in such a condition that we think it was suitable for a graze. So with the carbon product, if it's early on in the product development and you've got a germination of seedlings or palatable plants in there that you need to protect, well, obviously you need to manage that a lot more carefully to a more established area that could be six, seven, eight, ten years into a project and is in really good condition that can take a whole lot more grazing pressure. The carbon and the livestock work really well because the stock are really a byproduct of the native veg, vegetation that's on your place, and carbon farming is all about enhancing your native condition and extent of your native veg. So it's been a great change for us because it's reasonably secure. If you've got a good, well-developed project and you understand it from the start, in the dry years, your carbon payments are just so consistent, obviously, whereas your stock numbers could come and go. But the native trees and shrubs that you're essentially being paid to grow, they're very tough and you just need some careful management early on in looking after them to give them a chance. So in 2018, we destocked completely out there. Mm-hmm. We just got to a point where we thought that the country just couldn't sustain the animals in a productive manner. But we did have four inches of rain for that year. Having the carbon income actually made it a whole lot easier to make that decision to destock because you know you've got income. So. Yeah. If it was pre-carbon project days, you would be more tempted to perhaps try and feed in there and sneak them through, which is a big challenge out there anyway. The carbon really prompts us to make the right decision with our land management because you don't have that pressure hanging over you of knowing that if your stock go, you've got no income. Well, you know, if the stock go, you've got some baseline income from your carbon. So it's really complementary to good regenerative or sustainable land use. Yeah, it's really interesting because there's often a bit of a misconception out there that you can't graze on carbon areas. So it's interesting to hear how those two work so well together. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot of misconceptions around carbon farming in general because it's the methodologies are somewhat complex when you read them. The way they're delivered in a practical sense on a property are sometimes contradictory from the outside. So I also work with Green Collar carbon farming providers. So we did our project with Green Collar in 2015 and a few years later they contacted me their business was growing and they had a lot of interest across especially the western areas for someone to develop new projects so that's when i um, came on board with green collar but the majority of the green collar projects have livestock in them it's just the extent of the grazing and the timing and the numbers that you have to adjust at different times which works well for you yeah that's right i mean there is a handful of places that don't have stock not so much projects with green collar but there is ones around but certainly the minority yeah So we can be confident that you do know what you're talking about. I would like to think, Jazz, that if I wasn't worth talking to by now, someone would have tapped me on the shoulder. But listen, every place is different and we certainly, Green Collar and myself away from Green Collar, we don't have all the answers. Every place is different. And I think the message really is to perhaps change your perspective of the way you look at your place. And sometimes that 
is about getting someone in to talk to and see what they think stimulate you to think about things perhaps in a little bit different context. We all get set in our ways or set in our thought processes. So now I suppose we don't have all the answers, but we've got a few examples of what works mm -hmm. really well for some people. So I find that with my job, even getting around and seeing what people are doing really gives you the opportunity to see what's worked well. And potentially in some cases it's mistakes people have made and that they've learnt from. And you just really benefit from those conversations with other people rather than starting from scratch and doing it yourself. Absolutely. The management technique that you're using up there, you've now got two properties down near Condo, Chukia and Kalinga. So those same principles work down here? Yeah, so we're probably a little bit unorthodox down here, I suppose, in the way we manage this place. So much of this country that we're in, in the Lachlan Shire, is the focus completely on growing crop or is a mixed farm system. So I suppose we're completely the opposite in a lot of ways. We're full livestock, no cropping at all, really, unless we can con one of the neighbours into doing a little bit here and there for us. But I've got a couple of motorbikes and a Hilux, and that's the extent of my machinery. So I've got my green collar work as well, which means that to go down a cropping line, it'd be a huge venture and we'd need staff and we'd need a big amount of investment to do that. So we're focused on, I suppose, continuing what worked well for us at Dungarvan. It's just when you get down here, the blocks are smaller, there's more rainfall, you can manage them so much more easily. I can muster this whole of trachea probably in a day, one decent morning you'd, and another follow-up the next morning, you'd probably have everything pretty much under control. Maybe not, there's a few hill paddocks up the back that are a bit more challenging, but the logistics are just so much easier down here. And I really like that higher rainfall, it's obviously 400, 440 mil down here. Yeah, I think That's, everyone's quite keen on that. There's something to manage, you know what I mean? Because the yeah. challenge at Dungarvan, and not just Dungarvan, the challenge in the lower rainfall areas is you get to periods, there's essentially nothing to manage because you've got no growth to make decisions off. So with your ground cover goals and your species goals and everything you've got, you can just do it so much quicker in a higher rainfall. So that was really attractive to us. Plus the fact my wife's parents aren't too far away. They're a couple of hours away, which is really good family support for us. And we're, you know, 60 k's out of town with a great town like condo all the services it provides but especially the school so those sort of things are really help shape our decision but they're also things we really enjoy about being here yeah it is a nice area there's just about everything you need close by and it's in such a huge condo is such a surprise packet for us i mean there's so many good people here that mm. we've met and so many good places and such good country right around condo on every side we thought the same thing just the people so welcoming so willing to give you a hand yeah, really nice location. Oh, and really down to earth and happy and productive. People mm. love being here, living here by choice. And that really rubs off on the whole community. So we didn't put much research into that at all, to be honest. We just found the block and we really liked the block. So we just jumped on in. But luckily, we've got some great neighbours, particularly, and some just great people in the condo community. And so you both work full time, like you work off farm as well. And it's 500 k's between the two properties. How do you manage that? It is a challenge, I think, because I did five or six years on Dungarvan before whilst I was in Burke. So during that time, I really set it up for somewhat a remote job. So dad was there, you know, dad was approaching, I suppose, he, getting older, wanting to slow down. So essentially we set the place up to be, it was well fenced, so you didn't have to go and check fences every time you either put sheep in or put cattle in or put stock in or out. We set the waters up with solar pumps and we set most of the paddocks up with groundwater and with piped water mm -hmm. as well, so there's options. And we make decisions over the summertime to put stock where there's surface water. Mm -hmm. 
so that I don't have to be running up and down or we don't have to pay extra people or monitoring costs. So it is a challenge. My father was there for quite a while until he had some health challenges and unfortunately he can't be there anymore. But we've got a guy I work with up there that's not too far away that's involved with, he's actually a dog trapper out of Louth mm-hmm. who helps manage our place. He's trapping dogs, but he's also keeping an eye on stock and waters while he's there. And he's a really good guy. He's got a big skill set. It just works in well for him. It's easy for him to keep an eye on. There's not big challenges. So if you set your place up so it's easy, so that you don't have eight boars to check each morning or troughs that cause problems in the wrong spot. If you put some thought into your design of your property layout and how you want it to run, yeah, it certainly can be done. And no doubt makes it easier to get someone else to help do that with you. That's right, because you're more up there, you certainly more chance of getting someone to keep an eye on it than actually be a full-time manager. And the way we run it, we've got casual contracting staff that we pay to come in and do jobs when needed, but it's really just Danielle and I in the business. So you used to run grazing charts for a while and you've moved away from that. For anyone wanting to get into the type of system that you're running, maybe touch on grazing charts, where you think they're useful and also why you moved away from them as well. Yep. I suppose I've done a reasonable amount of training across the years. I've done grazing for profit school and we've done holistic management. We ran some pasture to pocket two-day grazing workshops, been involved with grazing naturally, been exposed to a lot of different thinking around it. And I think it's really good because it challenges you to think about how you want to set your place up. For us, the grazing charts, because we're already, I suppose, for want of a better word, I'm more into feed budgeting and assessing what's in front of me and making a decision to utilise that. And See, that grazing charts are great if you're absolutely fully stocked and it rains all the time because you're really responsive. So you can plan out your rainfall and you have many DSE days off the back of that rainfall event. We're going to run X amount ahead. So you go out and buy them, you load up, but then once your indicator flips the other way, you've got to get out really quickly. Otherwise you get caught. Our system's generally a breeding enterprise for a start. So mm-hmm. we're not always matching the stocking rate to the carrying capacity. I'd say most of the time we're probably a fair way under But when you're under, you've always got something in front of you. It may not have the quality it did three months ago, six months ago, but if you're running breeding ewes and you're willing to supplement with a little bit of lick and you turn them into a paddock, well, they'll get through that next period until you get another rainfall event and you're away. So the grazing charts for us, for running a breeding enterprise, we just found it so much. I didn't really like it when there was nothing happening either because you kind of know there's nothing happening when it's not (laughs) raining, you know what I mean? So... I did break it down into a few three-month, six-month blocks and then make decisions on the back of that. How would you do a feed budget? If we were going to go out and have a look today and you were going to budget for the next three, six months? Yep, I'd go and have a look at all the paddocks I haven't got stocked and just see the condition. And now it's probably from experience with this block and Dungarvan, you know what numbers the country can handle and what it can't. Mm -hmm. And then you just calculate how many graze days you think you could get out of it. Worst possible scenario that doesn't rain again for the next three to six months or no effective rain. And so you're looking at indicator species like perennials? Yeah, absolutely. So looking at those key palatable perennial species, especially and just seeing the, the quantity and the quality of them. Our feed budgeting works really well in that you've made the decisions on the back of that mob until such time. I think where a grazing chart works really well is if you're purely focused on absolute utilisation of your whole place and then big numbers in big numbers out and very very reactive so for me to bring 18,000 sheep into Dungarvan I mean there's 18 trucks for a start that I've got to load I've got to unload them and I've got to get up there and I've got to start unloading them I would rather turn off two and a half thousand lambs uh, 3,000 lambs and truck them out load them on a truck for a reasonable profit 
and forego a few DSE and leave some DSE days back in the paddock, knowing that my country's in good shape. I figure I'm not doing any harm for the country that I'm, I suppose you could say, underutilised or, mm-hmm. or not fully utilised. Yeah. Well, it's um, sitting there seeding out as well, I guess. It's only going to do its natural thing. Mm-hmm. If you did it for long enough, I think it would start to go backwards as far as plant, especially grass plants, need a lot of stimulation to keep them active and productive. Mm-hmm. If you let them go rank for too long, things can change. But for us, it's generally only 12 months or two years at the most. The other thing with the grazing charts, it's all right if you write into them. Like some people really enjoy, you know, so you might have, say, one, two, three, so say two mobs here, two mobs at Kalinga. I've got two mobs at stock at Dungarvan. So I'd have to have six rolling lines on a chart that I've got to fill out pretty much daily or at least weekly. I reckon I'd get one week done and then I'd go on a work trip to pack saddle and that's it. The chart would stop for me. So for us, like you, all our decisions are around supporting what Danielle and I and the family want to do and what we enjoy doing and not trying to create a huge workload or a huge level of stress that makes you question what you do, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So it's set up that we turn off a reasonable number of value product in a way that has, a, I suppose, a low impact or a complementary impact on the land, but also complements what Danielle and I want to do. It's about lifestyle as well. Yeah, it is. That's right. It's about lifestyle. And just because you... um, I suppose the choice, it's really about what choices you want to make. You know, and someone in a different situation, if they weren't working full-time off-farm, they might really enjoy doing a grazing chart and having a higher-octane approach to full utilisation. But it started at Dungarvan because if you're five or 600 k's from your nearest market, the idea of trading, like, you've always got your cost of freight and you've also got the logistics of actually getting the animals off the places. Dirt roads, it rains, you can't get them out. So you could be coming to the end of your grazing chart, right, we've got to pull out, we've got to pull out. They get really good rain between you and the bitumen. You know, so you're stuck with your animals. They've got no fresh feed and you can't get them up the dirt road. So for us, like all those challenges when you actually try to do it, they sound really simple. But once you actually do it over a number of years, you've got to work it so it works well for you. I guess that's my next question. I often get asked about someone who's running a rotational system. How do they manage that with ewes and lambs? Like, how do you prepare and make sure that you've got that feed there in front of them and you're not moving them around when you don't want to? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's really all about that feed budgeting, I think. Perhaps having some some paddocks there that you can probably treat pretty poorly if you want to are either sacrificial paddocks or there's not much to be gained in that paddock for one reason or another. Like, we had country here that had been farmed pretty continuously for quite a while and it had actually been put down to loosen and then the loosen standard slowly died out and we just had a lot of capped soil that would grow annuals but absolutely no perenniality in there at all essentially you can do what you want with a paddock like that i mean it's not going to get any worse you've either got some annual feed in there or you don't paddocks like that while people are getting set up that might be a good area to punch along a bit harder when it is on or even feed a bit in there if you have to the grazing management is really about protecting your perennial palatable plants and in particular it's your summer grasses here that are just can be so productive for you the annual stuff is easy like annual stuff, let it grow, let it seed, and then you can utilise it. The clover here, I can't stop the clover if we get a big winter. We just can't find enough mouths to do it. But, I mean, that would be an example. When we get a clover season here is when you might want to do a feed chart if you were trading. But talking see bigger numbers than what we run. So we've got the 500 breeding cows and 2,500 breeding ewes, and we're trying to get our ewe numbers will go up. Hopefully that can go up to a sustainable amount for us, which would be probably about 5,000 breeding ewes. And the cattle will probably halve, I'd say. It's just been an opportunity to get into them that came forward with the big grass season that we're having last year. I tend to use cattle on grass to manage your grass 
once it gets to a certain point of view, you can certainly do it with sheep. You just need more numbers. And so manage some of those grasses, like your spear grasses. Is that what you're talking about? That's right. Trying that's what well, spear grass is. It's a little bit of an anomaly because it's interactive and it sort of comes along in a bigger year. And then once it's up and done its thing, it's less palatable. So you've only got this little window to manage it. Just make sure you're not overgrazing your softer, you know, your softer native grasses, your panics and your mulga Mitchell if that's in your system or the more desirable ones. Some of them you can push pretty hard and some I mean we've got some good paddocks here that it's amazing how tough those grass plants are once you've got full cover with them that's really amazed me at Dungarvan it's different up there there's less really highly palatable and the country will go back to big licks of less palatable grass really quickly so it's whereas here you've got smaller paddocks actually the biggest thing here in the last few years is actually been able to graze those grasses properly get enough mouths on them but if you don't, then they get go a bit rank into the next winter. The higher rainfall stuff is a higher level of management as well. So growth phase of grasses is obviously something that you keep a close eye on. Yeah, that's right. And that's when your grass is productive. So, I mean, once it's up towards a mature plant in phase three, it's pretty much becomes maintenance feed. So if you're doing any level of production job on it, you want to be really hitting that grass when it's actively growing, preferably like in phase two with a perennial plant. Well, phase one is really good for the stock, but not so good for the plant because it doesn't get start that needs to put its roots down. So I just try and let them get well through phase one and towards the end of phase two before you can graze it. But then once you've got it up and going, but it works really good for our breeding enterprise again, because we're not looking to batten sheep all year round. We just want them to be in really good, healthy condition. Then it's a bit more of tailoring your feed when we've got our lambs and calves on the ground, you know, if it comes to weaning time and they don't, we don't have good feed in the paddock where we either step out of them or we try and feed them a higher energy ration to complement your grass in the paddock. Ultimately, you're managing livestock, but you're really talking about what's on the ground. So you did a water point exclusion project with LLS a couple of years ago, and so that was all about managing those, well, unmanaged grazers, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. It, we've done a few ground tanks under that. I suppose my appetite for it was more so what we had done at Dungarvan and to see how handy the enclosures are. We used them up there originally to trap goats and to truck goats out from each spot so there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of walking involved. And one of the main benefits, we're trying to do the same here on a little bit of, our, I suppose, for want of a better word, rougher end of the place, which is some rocky hill country with a couple of partly developed valleys through it. So we want to do the same thing in that have a facility to actually um, get that grazing pressure down. Ones we've got here are all exclusion style fence. So it actually helps us cut those rue numbers right down if and when we want to. This... And it allows you to know what's actually utilising that feed that you've budgeted for. Yeah, it gives you some control over it. I mean, especially those two enclosures up at the top end of the place. I mean, the rue and goat pressure up there is the reason that there's very little perennial palatable grass up there. Mm-hmm. Whereas you come down... We call it the top block and the bottom block, but it's come down to the bottom block here and, and our grass cover is really good, but it's never had that goat or root pressure that you've got up in that valley country. So it'll really help there. Apart from that, you've obviously got the benefits of managing your actual, the air inside your ground tank. So some of the troughs in most of the paddocks as well. So potentially down the track, and we haven't done it yet, but is to exclude access to those dams altogether and try and get your vegetation to grow. We've done it off and on, but we haven't done full exclusion, but I'd like to get good healthy cover in there at least to improve water quality yeah to improve water quality just improve the whole environment around the water point i mean the water points can become especially with cattle completely manky mud silted up and it is a challenge sheep less so but yeah we just need to do a few more alternative water points here before we can do that properly and i tend to when i go away here i tend to give them access to the ground tanks 
we haven't been able to fully execute what the full potential of those yet, but we're moving in the right direction, I think. I definitely think you're moving in the right direction. <laughs> it's a brilliant system and I think we're going to have a look at some of these cattle now, are we? That'd be good. It's always more fun outside. So, uh... <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much for your time today, James. Thanks, Jazz. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.